Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All we say to America is be true to what you said on paper. <laughs> I live in China or even Russia or any totalitarian country. Maybe I could understand some of these illegal injunctions. Maybe I could understand the denial of certain basic First Amendment privileges because they haven't committed themselves to that over there. But somewhere I read of the freedom of assembly. Somewhere I read of the freedom of speech. Somewhere I read of the freedom of press. Somewhere I read that the greatness of America is the right to protest for rights. So that's because I say we aren't going to let any dogs or water hoses turn us around. We aren't going to let any injunction turn us around. Ladies and gentlemen of America, this is AJC Radio, where we bring the message of justice all around the world. Tonight, we continue our series on the many faces, many systems of justice and unequal justice in this country. We deal with a lot of topics tonight. Where, why and where is unequal justice really dominating the United States? Breaking news, Bill Cosby is released from prison after the state Supreme Court states he never should have been locked up as a result of the alleged crimes that he committed. We're going to deal with all of that. Also, an issue in Colorado, in Greeley, Colorado, 
where a officer is placed on administrative leave for assault. We're going to deal with that and many, many more issues dealing with unequal justice in this country. Folks, hang on to your seats. We take off right now. There you have it. I'm Lamont Banks, along with David Banks, Demetrius Harper, Kendrick Barnes, Dave Zapolo, Sampson Riddle, William Williams, Clinton Stewart, and Dennis Merritt, and the entire AJC radio team tonight as we again pick up our discussion in regards to the many faces of justice in this criminal justice system in the United States, the clear disparities that are there, racial disparities that are there, economic disparities that are there. Uh, and why these things continue to roll out of control. Uh, we said last week on this show, since the George Floyd uh, conviction of Derek Chauvin took place, uh, we have seen more senseless killings and abuse by officers in an alarming rate getting higher and higher each and every day in this country. Uh, we would at one point believing perhaps this would be a deterring effect uh, on officers with body cams that continue to blatantly disregard the law, disregard the rights of citizens, and do some horrendous things. You're going to hear about those things tonight as well. Uh, and, William, as we get into this, how important is it uh, that this situation be at least become conversation that we can find some resolution here is our hope. It has to be because I think a lot of people were anticipating, you know, the outcome of George Floyd would change. We would see police departments kind of going through a, a reevaluation, some training, you know, something to bring them closer to the community. And they, for the first time, them acknowledging the fact that, listen, our policing habits and behaviors need to be changed. We do see that that's a problem, but, now, but we, it's obvious. It's obvious that they did not see that. Or they may have seen it as a one-off. They're going to continue to do what they want to do. And what happens is there are those, and, and most of it, most of the victims are minorities, are feeling this almost like this backlash from the police department. So what we what we saw over the past couple of years that was that was a racial divide when we saw you know Tamir Rice, we saw Michael Brown, we, we saw all these cases, Brady Gray, Walter Scott. The, this racial divide is going to continue to be to grow more and more. We're going to see more of this adversarial adversarial type of scenarios that play out between police and minority communities. And it's just it, we have to have this discussion. We have to be able to sit down and talk and come together and figure out, hey, what do we need to do as a community to to help engage police, bring police closer to us, and for us to um, actually reach out to the police you know and 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 the first thing and we've said it on several shows there it's not all of them there are a few bad apples and and those are the ones that we see in the in the headlines we see on the on the uh, in video so there are a lot of good police officers out there that are willing to say listen we have to have discussion we can't be in this kind of situation where it's us against them and um you know, so as a community, we have to start the discussion. We have to reach across the line and see and move this ball forward. Samson, your thoughts? Well, I mean, William has a lot of good points there, and I mean, until the fact that we can we can close 
the gap as far as the disparities between sentencing, the ratio of personnel that are actually getting arrested, convicted, even just harassed and stopped by police officers out there. Like, we have to bring awareness to all this stuff that's going on out there. I mean, this, the, the numbers are out there and they don't lie. The fact of the matter is that, you know, a, a man, a young man of color is five times more likely to be, you know, arrested or see jail time or some sort of conviction in his lifetime versus a, his white counterpart. I mean, it's, it's, these aren't just things we're pulling out of thin air. It's factual. You know, you can go out there and do the research. The, the fact that, you know, 6.7 million people are, are in incarcerated or some type of probationary status here in the United States, 2.2 million of which are incarcerated, the vast majority of which are people of color. I mean, again, it's a statistic. It's nothing to argue against. So the fact is, like, until we get to a point where, you know, all these disparities are driving wedges in our society and not only on, you know, the, the criminal justice side, but also it's actually it'll, it affects the economy. When you're talking about somebody that's had any type of record reduces their salary by 52% for the rest of their life, like you're hitting it, on, you're hitting our country on all levels just because there's a racial disparity in our criminal justice system. Well, not only that, when you talk about overcrowding in the prison system, uh, we're dealing with the abuse of power behind the walls of federal and state prisons. We're talking about people dying in custody in, in local and county jails. This thing is not only police officers, it gets the correctional officers. It gets the sheriff deputies, people that are over inmates, that are actually waiting for their day in court to be proved innocent or guilty, uh, where people are dying. We talked about Khalif uh, Browder last week uh, in Rikers Island. This man was never charged with a crime. He was never charged. He's dead today because of what took place at Rikers Island at the hands of correctional officers and inmates. That is critically important. So as we have the largest population of incarcerated people, wouldn't it be in our best interest to ensure that with that many people incarcerated, that needs to be addressed, number one. But secondly, who do you have behind the wall that is dealing out unequal justice to different inmates because they're African-American or they're minorities? People are dying behind it. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna deal with that on the other side of the break. We got a lot to cover tonight. That's a vast uh, sea of discussion, but very important that we discuss these issues. We're gonna talk about Mr. Rainey down in Florida, who was killed in a hot shower by officers. This is an abuse of discretion and power that you've given at the discretion uh, uh, of these officers. All of this needs to be discussed. And we are going to come back with Heroes That Honor the Badge, our very special segment we started a few weeks ago, dealing with the heroes that honor the badge in which they wear. We're going to deal with that on the other side of the break. Ladies and gentlemen, this is AJC Radio. Feel free to dial in at 646-200-0628, 646-200-0628. This is AJC Radio. We kick off on the other side of the break. I 
Toy, you know that. Do I? I bet it looks like one. Yeah, well, it's not. Anyway, I need it to protect you, your sister and mom. From what? From bad guys, like on TV. But what about the eight kids who got shot every day by mistake? Their daddies probably thought they were safe, too. Where'd you hear that? TV. Yeah, well, maybe we don't believe everything we hear on TV. Where'd you keep it? <laughs> it's hidden. I bet it's on top shelf of the closet, under your sweatshirt. Is it loaded? It's not. I, I keep the bullets. In the boots with the red bases, in the chest beside the bed. I haven't found them yet, but I'm sure I can. You always told me to be curious. Remember when I found my Christmas gift? I'm a good climber, you know. No. No, that's not what I meant. Look, I, I need to be ready if someone breaks in. What about when it's just me and Mom? You taught me to be brave. I could use a gun to protect her. No, Justin, I promise. I'll teach you how to handle a gun when you're old enough. What if I don't make it to old enough? I could get bullied and decide it's too much for me. It would be so easy with our gun. Our gun? No, buddy. My gun. But it is our gun. In our home. Happens all the time. I'll make sure that doesn't happen. I'm always here for you. But, Dad... You're not always here. The criminal justice system has a set of rights created to protect you. But do you think it's really protecting us? You had a right to remain silent. But that really means you had a right to be silent, doubted, interrogated, suspected. The color of your skin can and will be used against you in the court of law. In their hands, we're incarcerated five times more often than white people convicted for the same crimes. You have a right to attorney during questioning. In some states, 80% of criminal defendants can't even afford an attorney. So an overworked public defender controls your fate. One government employee countless lives at stake. You had a right to be innocent until proven guilty, but somehow about 47% of the wrongly convicted are black. And if they do prove you're guilty, they're going to write you a run-on sentence on average 20% longer than white defendants accused of the same crime. Even if you get out, you're still not free. When you're ex-con, they had a right to deny you a bank account, deny you a mortgage, Deny you a job, deny your vote. And if you don't remain perfect with the smallest slip up, smallest infraction, 
the most honest mistake. You want to join us, the 80% who come back to prison within five years, as I did. That's when you realize they didn't bring us here to thrive. They brought us here to build this. The plantation and the prison are actually no different. The past is the present. It ain't no coincidence. This was the plan since abolition to keep us subjugated by creating this system. But I believe in a different set of rights. The right to stand up and be heard. The right to reform a broken justice system and build a new future. We had the right to be silent. Now it's our right to speak up. Do you understand these rights as I read them to you? Almost every day in the news, we hear stories about innocent people who are returning home after spending years in prison for crimes they did not commit. What you may not know is that their problems don't end once the limelight fades. For many wrongfully convicted individuals don't receive a penny for the injustice that they've faced. Take the case of Floyd Bledsoe. He spent 16 years in the Kansas prison for a murder and rape he did not commit. And while Floyd was eventually exonerated, he lost everything. His family, his farm, and decades worth of income. Unfortunately, Floyd's story is not unique. Kansas, along with 17 other states, doesn't have a law to compensate wrongfully convicted individuals for the injustices they've suffered. And in states with compensation laws, many of those are woefully inadequate. We owe it to all the men and women in all 50 states to provide fair compensation to those who've suffered these injustices. Join me in urging our lawmakers to do the right thing by the wrongfully convicted. Go to innocenceproject.org to find out how you can help. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AJC Radio, where we bring the message of justice all around the world tonight, dealing with the many faces uh, and systems of justice in our criminal justice system in the United States, uh, and it is in a bad shape, a bad condition, uh, and we're going to get into that. Unequal justice across racial lines uh, is dominating our criminal justice system today. It is un. It is unbelievable that we see a continue uh, after the death of George Floyd, which has been happening. Those type of issues have been happening across the board 
for a long, long time. Uh, we have the sentencing of Derek Chauvin uh, that took place. A lot of people feel like unequal justice was done there. A lot of opinions on that. He'll do 15 years uh, in total, uh, at least on that particular case. Uh, and a lot of people were outraged about that. Um, so we got a lot to discuss, a lot to get into. And I'll tell you right now, uh, with the news yesterday of Bill Cosby uh, being released uh, from prison after court overturns his conviction, uh, and, and we'll go ahead and, and, and share that story with you. Everybody's talking about it. Um, something that needed to happen. Uh, and many, many may not agree with that. Um, he settled for $3.2 million years ago in litigation uh, that ensured that there would be no criminal charges brought. Uh, they claimed that Mr. Cosby supposedly sexually assaulted a number of women, um, which as the facts of the case began to come out, at least as it's the theory of the case of the prosecution, uh, this case should have never been brought to court. The state Supreme Court in, in uh, uh, Pennsylvania made it clear that this should have never went. This should have never went to trial. He should have never been convicted of any crime. They weren't even really in in jurisdiction. It was not even in um, their power to bring charges against Mr. Cosby. But you had an overzealous prosecutor who wanted to go after Mr. Cosby. Uh, in spite of the fact of all of the things that were put put on the table, Kendrick, we were talking about it a little bit, these things were known to the prosecution at the beginning of this case. Uh, and we talked about the guy from Stanford last week, okay? He gets, what, three months in, 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 in prison, in county jail, never goes to the Department of Corrections, but three months in county for raping a young college student uh, outside of an apartment by a trash dump. Where was the outrage then? You didn't have much outrage, not from that uh, that community. Um, Kendrick, your thoughts on Mr. Cosby? Uh, we're going to read the story here momentarily, but it really goes directly to our conversation tonight on unequal justice in this country. Um, your thoughts on that, Kendrick? Uh, this is a prosecutor trying to make a name for himself. That's just how we look at it. You have a big name. Uh, he cut a deal with the, at the time, the uh, district attorney. That deal is binding. This came up in pretrial motions. The court allowed it to go. This is something that uh, you have to look at that some of these judges and prosecutors are people. They knew this was going to get a lot of publicity. They knew their name was going to get out there, and they don't care what happens to a person's life to matter this. So, yep. Granted, he's free, and, and honestly, I agree with the ruling because it, it is a uh, sound ruling, but he lost two and a half years of his life. He can't get back. This man is in his 80s. So to use your own platform of whatever your motive was, it wasn't about justice. Right. But I do believe that the Supreme Court was like, you know what, this is, this is wrong. Uh, you can't have one victim from – I mean the, in the story, if you go with the merits of the case – I have my own issues with that, but just looking at the legal issues, you 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 can't say you know what we can go back on our word and put you in in prison, but you better not go back on your word, you know, because right. we'll get you, uh, we'll we'll make you pay the law. So I, I really am glad that the the Supreme Court of the state made that decision is bad. Well, look, uh, the merits of the case are zero, in my opinion. 
There was there were no merits here. You have a young lady who spent three point two million dollars of Mr. Cosby's money to settle. You just three million dollars you took cash over the years. Did whatever you did with that money in agreement with the agreement with Mr. Cosby. Not only did you go to Mr. Cosby's house once after you said you felt uncomfortable. See, these are. Let me be very clear on this. If I go to your home and you say a pill was taken and a glass of wine was taken, and I woke up droggy and I was out of it because I got a Benadryl or whatever it was. For whatever you say Mr. Cosby did, the question that is highly suspect, I went back twice. You went back twice alone in this man's home again or his hotel room again. And you took the same pill and the same glass of wine. Help me understand that. A victim does not return. If I'm uncomfortable, I'm not going nowhere near. And if you admit that I took, I took a, str- I took a strange pill, if, and you went to this man's house alone, no one's there with you. Common sense is, what were you planning? Come you know. On. So to me, you can't, you can't call that a crime. Uh, it's it's not my lifestyle of my choice to do, but still, I don't think it didn't raise to the level of criminality. But you spent three. Point two million dollars, and nothing came up to that. You spent a, a millions of dollars of this man's money. And listen, I am all for victims, supporting victims of of of, of rape, of assault, of abuse. We support the victims who suffered at this end, but do not put everybody in the same boat and call it all. Oh, I'm a victim. Were you a victim when you spent $3 million? Not because someone forced your hand on it. David, your thoughts on that? Well, I think it, it's, it's an indictment on the criminal justice system. Now, if we look at this, the judge, the prosecutor, and much of the public was aware of the previous agreement that he had with the prosecutor. And that he should not be prosecuted. So let's t- just take a look at the, at the at the full picture. Why would they move forward with the prosecution that they knew shouldn't have never been brought and a trial that should have never happened? Because this is where you, you got this public lynching type of thing where the public, you got all the women coming forward uh, saying, he did well, I'm sorry if the statute of limitations ran and you didn't come forward early. And then you want to say, well, he still should be prosecuted. Well, you should have came forward at the time that the incident actually took place. And then don't find, find this, well, the ends justifies me. We had 60 women come forward. I'm sorry, but the system doesn't work that way. Uh, you should have came forward earlier. Then uh, they didn't care about the law. Now, look at the judge didn't care about the law, the legality of the agreement, the public as well as well as the prosecutor. Also, if you look at the entire system, so-called justice system here in America, people don't really care about justice. Justice is what they perceive it, it should be and what they want it to be. Well, so they wanted him in prison anyway. That's right. Irrespective of the agreement, 
with the previous prosecutor, they still wanted him in prison, bowing the public pressure to the Me Too movement, all this other type stuff. Well, I'm sorry. Um, uh, and I said, if in fact these women were victimized, I'm sorry about that. But at the same at the same time, uh, you have to come forward early. And this is this is the entire system. The ends justifies the means with the prosecutor, the judge, and the public. The law has very little to do with uh, how prosecutions are done in this country in many instances. No, without question. And it rests on the shoulders, if you know the story here, it rests on the shoulders of the initial victim who, who got the $3.2 million. Alleged victim. Let me say that. Alleged victim. Who got the th- so why did all these women come forward? There was a check on the table. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. No, they, they, people are going to criticize you for that. There was a check on the table. Bottom line. Because I'm going to tell you what. If you've ever come into contact with a true victim of assault, there is no delay. That's right. There's definitely not 30 years or 20 years. You are you want justice, you have now. been violated. Right. I need justice now. Exactly. Why didn't they all come forward? Because it was clear that Mr. Cosby was a target. You may or may not agree with that. I mean and is, is Cosby a creep? Yeah. I would say he's kind of <laughs> he's got issues, but I don't think he's a racist. I right. don't think well, what he did was a crime. Because but, I'm gonna tell you this, they said in most of the sixty two women that alleged misconduct there was no sexual uh, contact. It was not. There was not a rape charge. They said there was inappropriate touching or, or, or whatever the case was. And I'm not making light of that. That's yeah. your space. You deserve to have that space protected. But let me let, let me be very clear. Um, this is not about a settlement. If a person is victimized in the way that they demonized Bill Cosby. And that's exactly what they did. They demonized this man, somehow got him to pay this settlement years ago. And they bring it back. And you come up after you spent his money Mm -hmm. and say, I'm a victim of me too? Well, return the money back. Give the money back. I mean, if that if it's about justice, there's no price tag on it. And there's no price tag to help assault. And as David made a good point, to the victims of assault, we are there. Right. We support you if you're a victim of assault. But what makes this, this thing troubling, everything was laid out on the table. You got a check. With a cashier's check, whatever, for Mr. Cosby. In an agreement that was supposed to remain sealed. And then they make it This judge unseals it. Should have never been unsealed. That was not the agreement. And once you unseal it, you prejudice the pool of any jury that goes into that goes into that courtroom. You you prejudice that jury. But Mont, it, it goes back to the fact when we talked a couple of weeks about discretion. Look at the judge in Florida. He had a white uh, female, and he says in open court, you're too pretty to be sent to prison. But yet in Bill Cosby's case, everything was agreed beforehand. And here's this judge, again, discretion, agreed to 
no, we're not going to bring this information in. And then, like Kendrick said, I want to make a name for myself. That's already been, we've already settled it. But again, you have a black man, we're going to put him away for two years. You have the, the swimmer uh, on the uh, West Coast, he gets three months. There's right there exactly what we're talking about. You have the disparity between justice for a white man and justice or so-called for black. Well, and let's call it what it is. This prosecutor and judge, they flat out broke the law. Exactly. You knew the man had an agreement. You knew that agreement uh, should have been respected. And he was entitled. Uh, they, 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 they were entitled. Under law, they were res- uh, had an obligation to respect the agreement of the previous prosecutor. No, I, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to hang him high. Bill Cosby is a public figure. You got all these women uh, saying that he did this and did that. We're going after him anyway. I'm going to make a name for myself. And that's how it played out. You know what's really tragic? And I want to bring this point up. I'm going to get to everybody here. Uh, I'm going to bring our caller in momentarily. Hang with us. We're going to bring you right in, uh, our special guest. Um, Bill Cosby, the way the media, and I'll namely, uh, the media had, mainstream media had, Plaster women like a yearbook page, you know, plastered Bill Cosby's victims. This is what they put out there. And when I saw it, I was like, and the people are outraged on the news panel of all the mainstream media. How could Bill Cosby? And we're so proud of you, young lady, for coming forward after spending three point two million. We're thankful that you came and had the courage. No, she had the bank. She had the bank. And the way he was depicted, all the people that said they love Bill Cosby, where were they? Michael Jackson suffered the same fate, but he was never convicted. But he was convicted in the, in the court of public opinion. And he was found not guilty at his trial. It didn't matter. The damage that was done here, and, and I think that's important to point out, the damage you've done to this 83-year-old African-American comedian, really an icon in American television, he can never get that back. His wife can never get that back. There has to be accountability for these things. It has to be. We're going to bring a young lady into the conversation, and we'll change streams a little bit, but we're not done with this. Uh, we're going to get into Bill Cosby. What is his, What are his days like now? A uh, man in poor health, uh, trying his best to have a quality of life after spending two years uh, in prison. What he has alleged from the beginning is claimed from the beginning that he was innocent. Uh, they never afforded him that right to believe himself to be innocent because they nailed him to the wall day one. This is what we're talking about, the many systems of justice in this country. Right now, Darlene McDay uh, has been in conversation with our team. Uh, She is going to actually be coming on. Um, She has a story to tell. She's a nurse practitioner, a mother who lost her only child, Dante, in 2017, fighting for justice and accountability, worked on the Halt Solitary Bill, which is now signed into law, co-leader of the campaign to end qualified immunity in New York State, a true leader, has the confidence to stand alone, the courage to make tough decisions, and the compassion to listen to the needs of others. 
Uh, Darlene, are you with us? Yes, I am. Darlene, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Uh, we appreciate you uh, uh, for taking time out of your schedule. We salute you, and uh, we're going to let you tell your story. Uh, as you hear us on this show tonight, talking about unequal justice, and again, not only in, in policing, in, in, but also in uh, correctional officers, any type of enforcement of law, uh, we have a major problem and we have a breakdown in our system. And uh, I think your thoughts uh, would definitely be informative to our listeners tonight. I thank you again for being our very special guest tonight to discuss and share what you are comfortable in sharing uh, in regards to the death of your son. Thank you for joining us. Go ahead and introduce yourself to our listeners. Thank you so much, Lamont. Um, yes. So my name is Darlene McDay. Uh, my son, uh, Dante Taylor, he was 22 years old. Um, he was in a correctional facility called Wendy Correctional Facility back in 2017 in Buffalo, New York. Um, on October 7th of 2017, I received the worst call in my life. It started first with another incarcerated individual calling me um, and telling me that my son had been brutally beaten by correction officers. Um, just to go back a little further, about three months before, the prison had said that he smoked K2. And because of that, they put him in a form of solitary confinement called keep lock. So basically at that point, he was not allowed to do anything. He wasn't allowed to go to um, any mental health appointments. He wasn't allowed to have any TV. He wasn't allowed to buy any commissary. He wasn't allowed visits. He wasn't allowed phone calls. Basically, they wanted a 22-year-old that they said had a drug issue to sit and stare at a wall and be locked in a cell 23 hours a day. Um, and because of that, his mental health started to decline, and he really had no support system because he wasn't able to call his family. So then on October 6th, essentially, um, apparently they say he smoked K2 again. And what, was I, what I was told by that individual was that he was sitting on his bed and not answering um, when his friend next door was calling him. So his friend put out a mirror and looked, and Dante seemed to be having a seizure. He seemed to not be able to respond. So they called for medical attention, and several officers came and then started beating him. During a seizure? They said during a seizure. Um, apparently, he may have come out of the seizure at some point and been confused by what sure. was going on because he was being grabbed. And... They just kept beating him, and it was a crazy scene from what I'm hearing from other people that saw it, and they essentially hogtied him with his arms and legs behind his back, and when he finally stopped screaming and he was limp, they dragged him out by his arms and his legs, and then according to some of the individuals, he may have fell down the stairs or been thrown down the stairs because they heard thuds going down the stairs afterwards. And then at that point, they were no longer able to tell me anything further. The next call that I received, or the call that I made next, was to the facility to find out what happened. I was basically given the runaround, said I couldn't talk to anyone when I identified myself. 
they said uh, that my son was back in the facility because I said, is he at the hospital or something? They said he's back in the facility. So I thought for a moment, okay, at least if he's back in the facility, maybe it's not that bad. So I waited because they told me I had to wait to speak to uh, watch commander. I waited a little while and then called back. And the watch commander again gave me the runaround, said, I don't know who you are, don't know how to prove it. I said, I don't know how to prove it, but I need to know what happened to my son. He said, I will check into his chart or whatever he said, uh, his file, and I'll have someone call you and, um, and answer any questions you might have. So then again, I waited because I had no choice. And the next call I received was from a reverend. And the reverend said, I need you to sit down. And I just, I, I went black. My my mind went black. And all I remember doing was screaming and not knowing what to do. And I hung up the phone with him to call my mother. And all I heard was wailing on the other end, because apparently she had gotten a phone call. And... Then I realized, like, what do I do? I, I didn't ask any questions beyond that. What do I do? And I called back the facility, and I was basically treated like dirt. And Officer Johnson, when he got on the phone and I said, I need to know how to get my son's body, said, you should have asked the reverend when you had him on the phone. That's how I was treated, like garbage. Um, then I got on the phone with a uh, captain when I called back again. And that captain basically said, you know, nothing happened to my son. That was all lies, you know, um, and I, he'd have the reverend call me as far as like the assault on my son. Nothing happened is what he was trying to tell me. I said, are you telling me my son's not going to have bruises on his face? And he said, no, very nonchalantly. When I received my son's body 10 days later, He did not look like himself. There are pictures of my son that were taken before he died, before he went to the hospital for the first time. And his, I've barely seen the pictures. I've accidentally come across them because I will not look at that because I can't even think of looking at that. But his head was completely deformed. From the nurse's notes, I read he couldn't eat solid food anymore. His eyes were almost completely shut, so he couldn't really see. And his face was completely swollen. But after this beating, he was sent to the hospital, where the hospital basically treated him like garbage. Again, because you're talking about state-run facilities, so they're used to incarcerated people coming in, I guess, and then just shipping them back off. Now, we all know if we had a child that, you know, bumped their head or something, we're always told, you know, don't leave them alone. You'll have to wake them up, things like that, because of a concussion or something. My son's head was deformed. When they sent him back to the hospital, to the facility from the hospital, they had done a CAT scan. They did not wait for that CAT scan to come back 
completely and be read by a radiologist, which the next day when he was already dead and it was finally read by a radiologist, showed that he was bleeding on his brain. Mm. It also, his EKG was abnormal, wasn't read by a cardiologist till the day that he died, essentially. So these people just shipped them back like there was no problem. He apparently was complaining of severe arm pain from having his arms pinned behind his back, and they didn't even x-ray his shoulders. I mean, they didn't do an MRI or anything of his shoulders. They didn't even really actually do x-rays of his shoulders. They did x-rays of his forearms. The um, nurse practitioner that saw him in the hospital wrote a note that said, this patient was obviously high on K2. This woman should honestly lose her license because that is not how you write a professional medical note. You note what you see. And you cannot see that this patient's obviously high on K2 because she also said that he was calm. However, calm... Everyone has heard about George Floyd and his breaths per minute were a big thing. My son's breaths per minute were 33 the entire time, apparently, that he was at the hospital, which is a very abnormal rate. And even upon discharge, they still marked it at the same rate. A person that's breathing at 33 breaths per minute is nearly going to hyperventilate. He was scared. But they just ignored that and shipped him back. And when he was brought back to the facility, now they want to say that they put him in a room and shortly after he hung himself. And imagine if those individuals wouldn't have called me, the other incarcerated people, because we all know a lot of times, you know, they might turn their back. They might not want to get involved. They might be scared themselves. For whatever reason, they might not get involved. And if those people hadn't called me, I would not have known what happened to my son at all. I would have gotten his body back 10 days later after being told that he was dead and had no clue why he didn't look like himself. Well, Darlene, let me say this. I'm very sorry for what you have had to endure. I mean that. Um, This is tragic. And for you to have to endure with such pain, please know uh, we are so very sorry for this. I did see the pictures that you you speak of moments ago. Um, What a tragedy and what a, a... act of violence on your son that was done it is uncomprehendable to me Uh, as an advocate we see and hear stories of tragedy like this a lot but for you to have to deal with that type of pain I can can only say from the bottom of my heart in this organization uh, that I am so very sorry Um, thank you what you have endured and if there's anything we can do as an organization to bring justice for the for the loss of your son we will do so um that's uncomprehendable to me and you said Thank he was you. 22 years old yes 22 years old 
Um, and, and like you said, you saw those pictures, right? Well, yeah. understand this. Those officers said that he did that to himself. That was their first story, that he did that Impossible. to himself. They said that Impossible. he was high and he was banging his head and body all over and he did that to himself. No. And when that story didn't quite work for them, they tried to just say they don't know how it happened. And then the garbage nurses that work at that facility, and calling them garbage is nice, because they said that they didn't notice his face because they were looking for his pulse. No. That's just not true. That's what they're trying it's to do. It's absolutely not true. Um, where are you in the process right now? I understand uh, there's been a, a bill passed uh, that was signed into law, the work on the HALT solid, solitary bill, and you were part of that? Yes. So initially when we filed the federal case for this lawsuit, I was contacted um, by a group of advocates um, for the HALT solitary bill. So at the time it hadn't been passed, they'd been working on the bill for about 10 years or close to 10 years already at that point. And they asked me to get involved with them, you know. And at first, you know, we all think of solitary as, you know, uh, maybe a, a cement box, you know, with a slit in, in it and to pass food and that's it. Um, but there are several forms of solitary. That's just one. So, right. you know, at first I was like, well, my son wasn't in solitary. And basically I was educated on the fact that, no, that is solitary. And, you know, it makes sense. Yeah. He was basically separated from any support system. He was given, he was take, everything was taken away from him. I mean, to take someone, it was actually, I say three months, 120 days he was given for that first offense of smoking. 120 days of nothing. So I got involved with the whole solitary campaign. As time went on, I got more and more involved started telling my story, um, you know, the story of what happened to my son and found so much support out there, which was really so helpful. And that's what I can say to anyone who has anyone in, in prison, in jail, you know, incarcerated, to get involved in these types of groups because the support is unbelievable and the knowledge is unbelievable. You know, and you don't want to wait to get involved until you're in my position because no, absolutely. then you're at a loss, you know. So what you need can, to get involved early on. What What can we do for you, Darlene, at this point? Um, we're, uh, we're pretty serious about what we do here at A Just Cause. Um, you'll have a platform here to tell your story, of course. Um, what can we do? What can we do for you? Yeah, well, right now I'm working on, you know, the end um, solitary. I'm sorry, we did end solitary. We want to end qualified immunity. So I'm working with a campaign to end qualified immunity. And, okay. you know, qualified immunity is a lot of people aren't aware of what it is. And you become aware, unfortunately, if you, for some reason, have to sue law enforcement. That's generally when you become aware of it. And unfortunately, yeah. that's too late to really become aware of it. So it needs well, to end now. Well, you know, and for do. those people 
Yeah. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead, Darlene. Oh, I was going to say, for those that don't know what qualified immunity is, it was a made-up legal doctrine that um, the Supreme Court made up in 1967. Okay, so this was the Supreme Court. We don't we don't actually vote in the Supreme Court. Those people are, you know, put in for life by right. a president. You know, so back in 1967, they made this decision to make up this legal doctrine, which basically protected any government officials. It includes other government officials as well, but usually it's used by um, law enforcement, and in this case, uh, prison guards as well. Mm-hmm. And basically it says that you have to cite, the plaintiff has, has to cite a clearly established law. And it has to be a clearly established law within that particular jurisdiction, which makes it even more difficult. So it goes yeah. around and around in circles, where basically law enforcement is granted immunity in many cases, in many cases, very heinous crimes. One of the most heinous crimes I've heard recently was one that happened in Texas, and you may have seen it um, on my Twitter, where a man that was having you know, a mental health episode, he was saying that he wanted to kill himself. He doused himself in gasoline. The cops talked about the fact they came. They talked about the fact that if they tased him, he could set on fire. And they tased him anyway, and he got set on fire, and then he died. And the court granted those officers qualified immunity because that particular thing had never happened in that jurisdiction, and they never determined that that was legally wrong. Legally wrong to set a man on fire. Correct. (sighs) Uncomprehendable. What I'm going to do, Darlene, I'm going to take a quick I'm going to take a quick break. And uh, you're doing great, and uh, Thank you. you're doing very well, and I appreciate uh, your your words. Uh, I want to get into further discussion uh, about your son so he can be remembered uh, um, in a good way versus what these people have done. Um, yeah. This is horrific. This is horrible. And to know this – and here's the thing you can, you can rest assured. Um, if – your son is in solitary confinement. He'd have no way to get drugs unless a guard brought it in to him. That's number one. He has no access to anybody or anything. Uh, and guards do this stuff all the time. We had a case I'm going to tell you about on the other side of the break regarding Michael Anderson mm-hmm. out of Florence, Colorado, who had, who, was on, who had two years to go on his sentence. He wasn't looking at a lifetime or many years. Uh, he got beaten up. He had told his mother when she came to the visitation room, she, he was scared to death that the guards were threatening him and doing this and doing that. He had a busted lip, um, and he said, Mom, I'm scared. When she came to visit him, I believe I forget which holiday weekend it was. It was a Memorial Day or, or Labor Day weekend. She stood in line for almost three hours before she was finally told that her son committed suicide that morning after breakfast. Mm-hmm. which was, again, uh, the pattern is what you're saying they did here in the case of your son. Um, yeah. It's, it is outrageous what we're seeing. We're going to talk about that. I want to get more from you. Uh, and ladies and gentlemen, you can feel free to dial in if you got any questions for Darlene or this show, 646-200-0628, 646-200-0628. Do you have some more time with us, Darlene? 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay, we're going to come right back. Ladies and gentlemen, I'll tell you what, show took a turn here very quickly, uh, but very much on point of what we're talking about, about unequal justice in this country. Uh, and, at the, and at what cost do we sit back and allow it? Darlene McDay, the mother of Dante McDay, tells her story even further. A heartbreaking story, but without question, a lady of courage and a hero of our time as she fights for justice for her son. We'll deal with that on the other side of the break. This is AJC Radio. We'll be right back. For a kid whose mom or dad is in prison, life is tough. Now add a wrongful conviction to that, life just got a little bit tougher. Trying to explain to friends why mom or dad is not at the school play or at the ball game is something that no kid should ever be faced with. Especially if mom or dad is innocent. Ladies and gentlemen, get involved today to stop the epidemic of wrongful convictions by remembering a just cause with a monthly, annual, or one-time donation, you can help in the fight against wrongful convictions. Call a just cause today, 1-855-529-4252. We seek justice for the children. As they go to bed at night and mom's not there, dad's not in the other room, to make them feel safe. Not because dad or mom did anything wrong, because justice could not be found. Join us for the children, for they truly are our future. Right now, uh, while you look at this on your screen in your hand or on your computer, there's somebody just like you who's sitting in a prison cell. And they didn't do much more than you did, you know, some crazy weekend. You didn't get caught. They got caught. And they can never get uncaught. The United States of America is now the number one incarcerator of human beings in the world, in the history of the world. Uh, we have about 5% of the world's population. We have 25% of the world's prisoners. Um, we are, we have more people locked up than China. China, who has a billion people, they got fewer prisoners than we do. You know, a lot of times people say, well, if you don't want to do the time, don't do the crime. Really? Have, have you ever committed a crime? You got people who are doing more drugs in on college campuses, in uh, uh, yacht clubs, country clubs. We all know that's going on, but the SWAT team never shows up there. The SWAT team shows up in the housing projects where you got poorer people doing fewer drugs, and those people go to prison. But think about it. What if one of the times when you were breaking the law, when you had something illegal in your pocket, in your car, at your party, the police had kicked in those doors, would you want to be known for the rest of your life based on what happened that night? That is what is happening to millions of people. If rich folks' kids get in trouble, they go to rehab. Poor folks' kids get in trouble. They go to prison and you spend $100,000 per year per kid to lock a kid up. 
when you could have spent a fraction of that and turned them into a NASA scientist, turned them into a, a fashion icon. When people come home from prison, they're not given the opportunity to start over. You leave a physical prison and you go into a social prison where you can't get a job, you can't get a student loan, you can't rent an, rent an apartment. How are people supposed to start over? And what happens to neighborhoods when you take a disproportionate number of people out for minor offenses and you send them back home with no hope and no opportunity? There are no more excuses to have this horrible system continue when there is now finally bipartisan agreement that it is a tragedy to do this. Not only do you have President Obama and the Democrats, you now actually have uh, people like Paul Ryan, Coke Industries, Newt Gingrich, all saying the same thing. We are locking up too many people. We're wasting too much money. We're, we're wasting too much genius in America, and it's time to do something. I can solve difficult problems for a Fortune 500 company. I can run a successful business. I can manage your home improvements. I can publicize the message. I can motivate your audience. I can put my military experience to work for your company. I can teach your children. I can boost your bottom line. I can have a I could be a loyal and productive employee. But I can't put my skills to work for your organization if I'm not given the opportunity. If you don't recognize my talents and ability. If you don't hire me. If you don't have an open mind and a workplace that's open to everyone. If you don't realize that America works best when everybody works. What can you do? What can you do? What can you do? You can remember that it works. It's what people can do. It's what people can do that matters. Nearly 50 million Americans have disabilities. Capitalize on their talents with employment practices that benefit everyone. Learn more at whatcanyoudocampaign.org. There was a shooting. When news and headlines following an act of gun violence fade away, who's left? The families. Gun violence is real. It affects more people than you would ever imagine. Losing a family member is one of the worst things that anyone can ever go through. This is something that's often forgotten, like what happens to the people after the incident. Although our country struggles to agree on a long-term solution to gun violence, we can all agree on one thing. Any family suffering a loss as a result of gun violence needs our support. Focus needs to shift to the human being. These continue to happen, and more people have join the club that we didn't ask to be a part of. There's families that are not getting the help that they need. It seems like there's nobody really rallying around the people who have experienced the hardship that we have. So many families in need, and I can really empathize with that. They need our love, compassion, and hope. Life for these families may not get any easier. Their lives are never going to be the same, ever. But with the support of others, they will get stronger. We can help. The Christina Grimmie Foundation, building a legacy of hope and inspiration. Over a million people are sitting in the prisons of America for nonviolent offenses. That's why I'm asking you to join the American Civil Liberties Union and help us in the fight to end mass incarceration. We spend over $80 billion a year incarcerating people, alternatives to prison, like community service, drug treatment, and rehabilitation, costs less, 
and can turn lives around. It's time to fear justice. It's time for smart justice. And we need your help. When does it stop being partly cloudy and start being partly sunny? Why is the word abbreviation so long? Are English muffins just muffins in England? Why is it called a washing line and not a drying line? Do fish get thirsty? If ghosts can walk through doors, why don't they fall through floors? Do you yawn when you sleep? If prunes are dried plums, how do they make prune juice? Why do doctors leave the room when you change? They're going to see you naked anyway. Do board chefs wear hairnets? How much deeper would the ocean be if all the sponges were taken out? Do you believe someone who says they're a chronic liar? Why is sandwich bread square and sandwich meat round? Life's full of hard questions. Ask one more. You might just save a lot. Ladies and gentlemen, to AJC Radio tonight. As we sit around this studio this evening, the emotion is clear. It cannot be hidden or tucked away. It is the most, one of the most difficult shows that we have had to do. As I listen to Darlene McDay. Talk about the killing of her son, Dante McDay. I am saddened beyond words for the pain Miss McDay has endured. But that many others across this country suffer as we allow over and over again these acts of violence and brutality is unacceptable in a society in which we claim to be a society of freedom and fairness. It is a sad day. I would be less honest to say anything other than that. But one thing I'm grateful for is the perseverance by Darlene McDay to fight in the midst of her storm, in the midst of her pain, to find a way to help others avoid that pain. To that, I call that a hero of our time. 
And we're going to get into further discussion about that now. Uh, Darlene, are you back with us? Yes, Lamont, I'm here. I have, over the break, uh, trying to compose myself um, for a very difficult story that you told today, but a reality in your life. Um, again, our sincere, sincere sorry for what you have endured uh, as a result of what these officers did, and they must be held accountable. Um, we were talking about a story I told you about regarding um, Michael Anderson in Florence, Colorado, uh, who I told you was killed uh, by the prison guards down there. Um, mm-hmm. Almost identical, David, almost identical to Darlene's story. Indeed it is. And uh, you see that it's, it's a particular ethos and mindset that are held by prison guards, whether you're in the federal system or state system. Uh, It's uh, America, I'm sorry, until you actually start to deal with these things and quit uh, bloviating and being uh, self-righteous about the United States criminal justice system, that the United States is this, the United States is that. The United States has some good things about it. But let's not turn our blind eye to these things that go on and act like they don't happen. This qualified immunity stuff for discretionary acts of officers, something has got to change with that. And like you said, this stuff is endorsed by the highest court in the land and actually brought about, as Darlene said, in 1967 by the Supreme Court sanctioning illegal acts, uh, discretionary, brutal acts uh, on people in this country. It has got to stop. And they, they, uh, now they're running around crying about, well, police officers aren't going to work if they don't have qualified immunity. No, do the right thing. and You won't have to worry about whether or not you have qualified immunity or not. There is, is it going to be perfect uh, as far as your exercise of discretion in, in the way you deal with stuff? No, it's not. But it will at least make you a little more uh, conscious of, of, of your activities and what you're doing that you could be held accountable. Uh, without the threat of accountability, these things will continue to go on. Darlene, your thoughts on that? No, that's absolutely true. I mean, um, you know, Officers that are doing the right thing every day don't really need to worry about whether or not they have qualified immunity. It's those bad actors, those bad officers that do things, um, you know, that are against constitutional rights of other individuals. Those are the officers that don't want to get rid of Well, all officers don't really want to get rid of qualified immunity, but I don't think that the officer is doing the right thing. They're just kind of sticking with all officers you know, all sticking together, but um, it actually hurts those officers that are doing the right thing, because essentially by having something like qualified immunity, it it makes us not trust them, because they can get away with heinous crimes, essentially, with immunity, and act with impunity, so now we don't trust them, because they can just do just about anything and get away with it. Well, what you do is give them a license to, if I can claim that, technically I'm not accountable for anything I do. 
mm-hmm. how in the world does a higher court allow such insanity to be incorporated in society with the standard of accountability should be higher with law enforcement? How do we give? How do we reduce that and say, well, you'll have qualified uh, immunity? So why do we? Why, why would we give someone with power that? That has the power to take life. It is it is insanity at its highest level. Um, Darlene, we're going to bring a, 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 our second guest on to join in this conversation with us, okay? Uh, and okay. we're going to get get into the Michael Anderson saga that happened there here in Florence, Colorado. Uh, I believe Christopher Zukis, I believe I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, yes, sir. He is Thanks for having me. Thank you, Chris. Uh, uh, did I pronounce your last name correct? Yes, sir, Zukas. Okay, I'm very happy about that. Uh, so I don't want to do any injustice to your name. But thank you so much for joining us tonight. I was getting ready to introduce you, Managing Director of the Zukas Consulting Group. Uh, Twelve years of experience as a prison inmate. During that time, primarily worked in the law library, assessing fellow inmates and wrote articles for publications uh, such as Prison Legal News, Criminal Legal News, and the Huffington Post. Uh, has earned both his bachelor and interdisciplinary uh, studies, business administration, legal studies, and master's of business administration for Adams State uh, University. Uh, you got a resume, and I haven't even got past the first paragraph. So let me let you introduce yourself to our listeners. I don't know how much of the conversation you've heard thus far. Uh, give us your thoughts of what you've heard, what we're talking about, uh, the sad tragedy uh, of Darlene McDay in the, in, in the death of her son. Uh, I mean, we're, we're all over the place here with this tonight, and we got a lot to discuss in a very short period of time. Introduce yourself to our listeners. I'll give you the floor. Sure. Thank you, sir. So my name is Chris Lucas. As you said, I, I was a senior in high school. I served 12 years in federal prison. Um, I'll say the things that you're saying, I mean, they're, they're real. I mean, you absolutely see this. Just the idea of qualified immunity. So it's, in my mind, it's the way that we think about prisoners. You know, I think people who don't have experience with incarceration don't have family members who have, have served time. It is, it's, it's the others. You know, this, this isn't our problem. And what you, you really do see this. And I kind of following on your story, I, I remember I had a friend who had a stroke and the staff at FCI Petersburg Medium uh, took him out. I mean, it, his deli had a beat on the door for maybe an hour after pushing in the address button to try to get medical help. They took him to the prison infirmary, brought him back, both times dragging him up and down the stairs because half his body wasn't working, pushed the address button again. 45 minutes later, he was dead. And people just don't believe this happened. But like, if you're on the inside, you see it. But the problem you find is that you know, prisons just lack the great sanitizer of sunshine. You know, people don't hear what really happens. And I think that, especially as a reporter, sometimes it can be difficult to believe very, you know, extreme stories. But like when you see it in front of you, you know, it's real. Yes. Um, it's just the way we, we think about people. But first of all, I'm so sorry to, to hear about your son. I mean, these people need to be held accountable. I mean, it is unacceptable for us to give law enforcement a license to kill and protection from it. You know, qualified immunity is like insurance. Insurance can be a good thing, but when you have bad people doing bad things, 
having insurance cover them so they're not held accountable. It just gives everyone else a license, you know, much like prison unions. When we have prison unions that are so, and police unions as well, they're so politically powerful that they can protect the bad actors, and there's not a lot you can do about it. No, I agree. Darlene, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, you know, these officers um, that did this to my son, they got caught up in lies. And, um, you know, luckily they got caught up in lies. Not that it's gotten me anywhere to this point, but it's, you know, we maybe have a case because of it. Um, So what happened was about four of the officers got together initially, very early on, I guess, not knowing that anyone would call me and tell me anything. And those officers basically tried to lie. I got one leg. I got the other. I got this arm. I got that arm. And tried to say that they were the only ones there essentially four officers. But because I had those names and, you know, identities from the people that called me and several of the other incarcerated individuals were willing to speak up and talk, I sent investigators to the jail that spoke and got um, reports from these individuals. Cost me over $20,000 to do so and got this information down on paper. So therefore, when there was an investigation by, it's called the OSI, Office of Special Investigation, so it's like the Internal Affairs Unit, they were able to actually uncover certain details and find out that the individuals were lying and that there were more like 15 officers there, not just four. And the officers had tried to lie about even being there at all. And then I don't know if I had sent you over some information, some of the report, Lamont, but the Office of Special Investigations actually said that they conducted an investigation and found that they substantiated the fact that my son was, in fact, assaulted by those officers and that the officers falsified documents. And you have the report. But what's crazy, yes, I have the report. Um, Mm -hmm. I got the report through a FOIL request. So that's another thing, too. You have to really work at getting the information because Department of Corrections is the least transparent agency that there is. They don't want Mm -hmm. you to have any information. And remember, I said, essentially, I would get no information if I didn't get it from the other people that were incarcerated. So luckily, they were willing to speak up. So at this point, with that information... And Christopher, uh, I'll, I'll address this to you as well. Uh, it's proof that they are guilty uh, and that they falsified reports, but they did it in the death of an individual. Does that make it uh, more compelling at this point then? I, I certainly think it does, and this is not unusual. Um, I remember several years ago when I was in uh, a, a, a friend who was transgender uh, hung herself. Um, and I remember them doing the exact same thing. Uh, they twisted this. They twisted the story. They did their own internal investigation. Their internal investigation naturally came out to find that staff had acted appropriately. Um, they then circled the wagons and started protecting the people who were really most at fault for instigating kind of the, the trauma that led to it. So it's a uh, it's a pattern of behavior that goes across state lines. 
federal, state prisons, all the above. Uh, as we talked about last week with Khalif Browder at Rikers Island, was never charged with the crime. One of the most horrific uh, jail systems in the country, the most violent at that time. Seventeen years old, I believe, is when he actually went in or uh, went into Rikers. Sixteen. Sixteen yeah, years, years old. Uh, but he ended up getting out. They held him for three years. Three mm-hmm. years, and then they threatened him that he was going back for disorderly conduct of some sort. But his fear of what he suffered at Rikers, the fear he suffered was that I can't go back there. When officers assaulted him, inmates assaulted him, and when he told, he said, I can't plead to something that I didn't do. He said, if I plead to something, I'm no better. My story will never be told. Little did he know it would cost him his life, and the pressure was too much. Where he hung himself by an air conditioning cord outside his mother's house as his mother heard his body bang against that house, not knowing what it was. Because she found her son hanging from that uh, air conditioning cord. Um, this is... And, and Lamont, ahead, I just want to say, yeah. um, you know, Khalif Browder, I'm friends with his brother, Akeem. So, you know, I've I've spent lots of time with Akeem. He is part of the whole solitary campaign as well. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's horrific, you know, what happened. We just I, I can't say celebrated, we we just memorialized um the death of both Khalif and also Laylene Polanco, who um I don't know if you're aware of her story, but she was a transgender person in Rikers Island who was put into solitary after medical um, medical professionals said she has epilepsy. She cannot be put in solitary confinement. And they put her in there anyway. And it's recorded where staff, when they did check on her, and they did not check on her often, but when they did check on her, sometimes were laughing. And then finally, she died. And I'm friends with her sister, Melania, as well. Um, You know, both myself, Melania, and Akeem recently um, did a march in New York to put an end to solitary confinement. Because even though we passed the HALT Act in New York State, it's supposed to apply to the state. New York City is still trying to do their own thing, where they're talking about um, making cages within cages. So essentially someone goes into a cell and outside of the cell attached to a cell is a cage. So the cage you can actually see through, but you can't go out of. And they're trying to call that out of cell time by going into that cage because suddenly you could see other people. And they're trying to say that that goes along with the law that we just had passed, that we fought so long to have passed. So, yeah, so we're still working. And I'll chime in there, too. I mean, you see this with the Bureau of Prisons, too. I mean, I've been through solitary confinement. I I did five months in 2012 in solitary. And, like, what they do is they try to 
tried to mint words. Like I remember the director of the Bureau of Prisons a few years ago was testifying in front of Congress on this issue, and he said, we don't have solitary confinement. Okay, well, they've redefined it as administrative detention and disciplinary mm-hmm. segregation. They're the same thing. I mean, you're locking a human being in a bathroom for 23 to 24 hours a day. Like when we would go to recreation, it's like you're putting this large dog kennel, I mean, which is infinitely just as violent as other areas of the prison too, but it's like you're literally locking someone in the bathroom and then putting them in a dog kennel. And this isn't how you treat people. I mean, we wouldn't want to be treated this way. I mean, I certainly wouldn't like want my family to be treated this way, but this is, it's just ridiculous. And also just to kind of channel off what you're saying earlier, I mean, the idea that police officers, prison guards can contribute to someone's death and not be held liable, not be criminally prosecuted. It's just absurd. I mean, if yeah. someone's out outside of prison goes and assists in the murder of someone else and then assists in covering it up, they go to prison for a long time, unless you're wearing blue. That's unacceptable. And what I'm going to play right now for you guys, uh, Darlene and Christopher, is what I call the sounds of solitary confinement. I want to get your thoughts of that. We've played it on a number of times on this show. Uh, buckle in. These are human beings that you're going to hear on this on this clip. Let's play it. Well, there you have it. 
Um, Darlene, your thoughts on what you just heard? Absolutely horrific. I mean, and imagine being in a in a cell and hearing those noises. And people are in these cells for not hours, not days, not weeks. There are people that have been in solitary cells for years upon years. And to hear those sounds is horrific. It is absolute torture, and that's what we've been saying all along. It is absolute torture. Christopher, your thoughts? That's it. That's what it is, day and night. You know, it's it's a perpetual kind of decline in your, your ability to think and function. Uh, I remember, I, I only did five months, but I remember when I got out, like, the things you take for granted were difficult, you know other loud sounds around you would make me jump. Um, crowds of people were hard to, even in the prison commissary was, was difficult. I mean, it, just, it impacts your psyche in these ways that I don't think the one going through it even necessarily realizes the significance of it. I mean, it, it's a decompression period trying to get through that. You know, And of course the staff view this as, oh, you did something wrong, so you deserve this. But I mean, they just, it's this perpetual desensitization or desensitizing process of how do we make this all feel very clinical to ignore the reality of it. You know, it's no, absolutely right. Absolutely right. And I, I when you witness these things, um, it, it's just, it is shattering because you just do not, People do not want to believe. And so they turn a deaf ear, they turn a blind eye. Eh. But do you know what's going on behind the wall of prisons and detention centers? County jails. People are leaving in body bags. And Dennis, we had a, Dennis is our veteran, on our, one of our co-hosts here on the show, Sergeant, I believe it was Sergeant Brown was taken into custody for a two-day DUI, turned himself in. They killed him. Exactly. Within a couple of days. And he asked for a Dixie cup, a Dixie cup of water. They refused him. He went into cardiac arrest, and he died. Because there is no concern behind the prison walls, like you were saying. Everybody's considered, I mean, when you think about it, uh, Christopher hit it on the nail. Until it hits home, until it's in your backyard or in your living room, or it's a family member, everybody just, no one wants to see or hear. But when it hits home, that's when we, 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 we get advocates. That's when we get people to say, hey, this is not right. But what we're trying to do on this show is trying to make people understand this is the truth. This is actually going on. A man going to prison, two days later, he's dead. There's a problem. And we talk about immunity. Come on. This should, no one should have a license to kill. Well, here's the problem. Not only are they in prison, they're not even in prison. They've been accused of a crime. Exactly. They haven't been convicted. Sandra Bland. Sandra Bland, one of the ladies out here, 
she's in her hometown. You know, she's there to get a job. They hire her. She's driving. She does a lane change. She does a lane change in traffic. The officer drags her out of a car, gets on top of her, and she is going off. What are you doing to me? She's dead two days later of the apparent she hung herself or killed herself in county. Why would she do that if she's going to start a new career and a new job? They don't add up, and they throw the suicide card on people who they have murdered. It's a disgrace. It's a disgrace what we're seeing here. Uh, keep in mind as well that uh, if not for video cameras, see, these people are operating with impunity because there are no cameras by and large, and nobody really knows what goes on. If there, if, if video camera hadn't have picked up Derek Chauvin killing George Floyd, get 100% guaranteed he would have got away with murder. But this is what's going on inside the, inside prisons behind the wall. The stuff that happens, the sounds of solitary confinement, all of those things are reality. People literally lose their mind, biting off, uh, biting off their fingers, all sorts of stuff. Uh, a former uh, warden of uh, the ADX here in Florence, Colorado, said it was a clean version of hell. That's how he described the ADX. So, and uh, we have some stories to, to tell about some of the some of the activities that went on in there that have been made public now. It's just absolutely outrageous what goes on with, with these corrections officers. What I need to do really uh, for Darlene and Christopher is to play a little bit of the interview. We're up against the clock a little bit, but a little bit of the interview with Michael Anderson, the gentleman, 44 years old, killed by officials at the Florence prison camp uh, here, in, in Florence, here in Florence, Colorado, uh, that I told you about briefly, Darlene, prior to Christopher coming on. But uh, the mother's heart story is heart-wrenching, to be honest with you. I'd like to play a little bit of that if I can and get your thoughts. Listen, we're going to pick this show up next week where we leave off tonight. I will extend an invitation to you folks to come back uh, if you want okay. to. Uh, you, you're welcome here to do so. Uh, but that's, again, please, uh, that, that's up to you, but we would love to have you if you can. So much has to be discussed that we haven't even begun uh, to scratch the surface on, but I, I think the conversation has been has been very good. I want to play this segment of this interview with Miss Anderson, and then I'm going to come back. Are you guys still good on time with us? Yeah, I'm fine. Okay, yeah, sure. Christopher. Okay, let's play this clip about a little bit of the interview with Billy Anderson, the mother of Michael Anderson, who was killed in Florence Prison Camp. And it, I tell you what, it's going to sound very familiar. Let's play the clip. <laughs> you so much for joining us tonight and, and for sharing your story. Uh, as I told our listeners before, and, and Natalie is a uh, young lady that joined us the other night. She talks, she's the founder of Prison Lives Matter. Uh, she's going to uh, listen to the conversation as well as we talk uh, tonight and uh, talk about uh, Michael uh, and also your grandson as well. And Billy, how are things going thus far? I know we talked today uh, and my understanding is you still have not been given the cause of death. It's 2018, uh, this was 2015, correct? Right. Yeah, they they still 
claim it was suicide, but uh, the coroner said it did not look like suicide. And if I could get a lawyer to take my case, uh, you know, I'd probably win because uh, they, he felt it was murder. Well, I'll tell you what. Uh, Go ahead, Billy. I'm sorry. Go ahead. And, and uh, anyway, uh, I tried to get the prison to talk to me. They will not. They would not talk to me. They finally just started hanging up on me and calling me names and stuff. And I just never got any satisfaction from them at all. Um, all I know is Andy is dead, and they did pay for him to be cremated. They they wanted him uh, cremated as soon as possible, and unfortunately, my ex husband. Uh, went ahead and went along with him and, and let him let him cremate him and that and um, but I, I know it's because they didn't want us to you know dig any deeper and that let me, yeah it let me ask you a question Billy and thanks for confirming that and, and I tell you what it just calls we will be looking uh, into this even further uh, Natalie, have you ever heard of a prison offering cremation services to someone who has a family that would take um, I haven't. I haven't, but I have heard many stories of prisons using different methods to try to hide what really was going on. Like, um, uh, for example, the, the example I was talking about on Tuesday about the man who passed away nine days into a sentence up in Dallas, they tried to keep the body from the family as long as possible so that they could hide what it was that they were doing. Pretty much a, a cover-up ploy. They just want to brush everything under the rug. They'll probably um, declare his his passing of natural causes, and then, then that's the way they get away with it. They declared um, the the gentleman in Texas. They they had the coroner report say that he passed away of natural causes, when in reality he baked to death for nine days. Um, <sighs> so I no, I personally I've never heard of of prisons offering funeral services or cremation. Um, but I'm I can't say I'm surprised about it. That's unbelievable. Yeah, you, Go ahead, Billy. You know. We could not. Uh, it took us hours and hours and hours to find Andy's where Andy's body was. They would not tell us anything after they sent him out, you know. And that they, I mean, my ex-husband had the family get really, really mad before they'd tell us where Andy was, and so that we could get him brought back down, you know, down to Cheyenne where we live. Um, and then they they would tell us nothing, you know, absolutely nothing about where he was or anything. And I surprised I surprised them by uh, going ahead and having him involved and stuff, and went up and visited him before he came on, before he was cremated and that. And Andy had bruises all over him and and that, and you could see where they had had a handcuff on him on one of his arms. You know, and where it was real tight, and he was, he had bruises all over. I know they killed him. I know they did. Oh, I have no doubt about that. And according to Billy, uh, you stated you spoke with your son on the phone the day before he died. He said that the guards told him they were going to have somebody in the yard shake him. He said they were going to keep him in solitary for six months or longer. He only had two yeah. years. 
two years yeah, ago. Yeah, and see, I, I was up there. I went up there to visit him. Uh, and one one day he was not in the hall, and the next day he was in the hall. And he was scared to death. You know, the next day they let me see him for about an hour, and he was scared to death. And he says, Mama, please go tell him I need some help. I, I need some help that they're threatening me. And he was scared out of his mind, you know. That is horrific. Go ahead, Billy. And, and uh, Andy was a very nice guy, but they made it so, you know, nobody would have anything to do with him in the prison. None of the other prisoners or anything. They they told him that they told the other prisoners he was a rat and everything else and just stay away from him. And, and they just isolated Andy totally. We called him Andy. His, his real name was Michael, but we called him Andy. And they isolated him totally, kept him, kept other people from being near him and, and stuff. They they made him a total outcast there. So there was something. I don't know what was going on, but there was something going on from the day one he went into that camp up there. And, and he, I mean, like he was just in in the camp. He was a nonviolent offender, and uh, you know. Well, there you have it. Um, a little bit in brief of the. Uh, tragic end and what you didn't hear in that interview because again we're against the clock and I want to give a give a, a true perspective from our guest on this uh, is that the grant the son uh, of Michael Anderson upon the death of his father Michael and uh, upon the death that Michael Anderson died went up into the woods and said he couldn't live without his dad uh, they were making plans to go fishing to go hunting to do all these things that father and sons do he went up there and he took his life, shooting himself in the head because he couldn't handle the loss of his father. There are many casualties of injustice. This is one case of them. Darlene McDay is another case of a casualty of injustice by the death of her son. And the many others who have suffered um, as a result of a system that if anyone could claim is the best system in the world, delusional. But that is what is stated, that is what is said, and that is what is supposed to be believed. Darlene, your thoughts on, on the little bit of the interview we played, uh, and hopefully I'm sure you see the similarities there. Uh, in regards to the death of your son. Give us your thoughts. Yes, absolutely, Lamont. Um, definitely similarities. Um, hearing Billy talk about, you know, not knowing the cause of death, you know, for a very long time. And that reminds me in my son's case, you know, we didn't have a cause of death for four months. So you're just waiting and you can't get any information um, as to what the, you know, medical examiner's thinking. And the medical examiner in my son's case actually, you know, ruling the cause of death was suicide, 
finding out later that the only reason she really came to that conclusion is because that's what the guard said. You know, she in fact said that there was no ligature marks on my son's neck and then basically said, oh, well, the reason could be because it was um, something that was soft like a bed sheet. You know, um, and also the only reason she came up with, you know, hanging was because of what they said. And then she said that he had petechiae in his eye, which is not specific. I mean, again, you're dealing with somebody with medical background here. And generally, most of the time, they're probably not. So I can see the holes in her story. I can see the holes in the nurse's stories. But again, these are state agencies. You know, that's a state agency. The Department of Corrections is a state agency. So they're all working together. But in my son's case, what she could not ignore was the blunt force injuries all over his body that could not have been self-inflicted. And the fact that these officers said that they were. But I don't understand how you can disregard that information from the officers and know that it is not true and that they lied, but then essentially accept that he killed himself because that's what they said. It makes no sense. And as Billy also said, I don't know if she's gotten a lawyer to this point, but that's another point. Getting a lawyer in these types of cases, prison cases specifically, is extremely difficult because, remember, with George Floyd out there in the open, somebody had a camera behind those prison walls, many times there are no cameras. Or they pull you behind somewhere where they can't see. And in those cases where you get no information from the Department of Corrections, what are you going to tell a lawyer? How are they going to know? They're going to get this report that says the person killed themselves. Oh, well, there's no case here. But getting FOIL information, being able to connect the dots is so very important, but not everyone is able to do that. And that is a very sad state. A lot of these cases, people try pro se, and that's how the officers also get away with things because people, it's very difficult to do a case pro se, um, you know, on their own. So, yeah, it it definitely... um, you know, rings true with me what she was saying. It, it's just absolutely horrific. No, absolutely right. And uh, Christopher, your thoughts on, on Billy's uh, statements? You know, you, you hit the nail on the head on investigating these issues. I mean, I think as we saw with the, the rise of police body cams, police body cams work unless they turn them off. I mean, you see the exact same thing when trying to investigate these kinds of cases in prison. I know for our clients, when we're trying to obtain evidence of guard misconduct, we make the request for the recordings to be saved on the cameras that are already installed. But the Bureau of Prisons almost always waits too long and claims, oh, it's only saved for 24 hours and it's re-recorded. It's really hard to get that kind of evidence. Like one of the one of the things in this arena that really frustrates me. So I'm now a third-year law student at the University of California Davis School of Law. And a vice president of our students against mass incarceration. And what I what we find is that kind of explaining this to people, you know, opening law students' eyes on these issues isn't enough. I think there is great visibility now on these types of issues, but now it's time to find a solution. And really, when we start looking at incarceration as the you know the correctional cure-all for everything, you know, DUI, go to prison, cheat on your taxes, go to prison. I mean. 
that's where the world is flawed. I mean, I think the, the next phase of this evolution is about breaking the system. You know, it's about public defenders having their, all their clients starting going to trial. You know, force the police to start deciding who really needs to go to prison, if anyone. I mean, there, there probably are some people who do need to go to prison. But, I mean, this the answer, the global answer of everything is just prison. This isn't the answer. Um, well, and it's and, very and good, shitty business. No, good point, Christopher. And and not, not only that, the outrageous conduct for you to punish an inmate beyond their conviction. Uh, not in a, I mean, I don't even think there's a human way to continue to punish someone when they've been sentenced to time in prison. Uh, but not again, as we said earlier, some of these people are doing these things in county jails. Well, they're simply waiting to get their day in court. They're dying in county jails. Um, Dave Zapolo, go ahead. I mean, Miss Miss McDay, I I just want to say how sorry I am for everything that you're going through, and I really hope that. Soon you're going to be able to get justice because if people don't understand how insidious the um, the system is and the qualified immunity uh, law is, it's after hearing your story it, they'll never understand because you see that this in this instance here you see that they committed a crime and they need to be punished for it and when you see just recently there was a story of the supermax in Florence the ADX, where the special operations team fired plastic bullets and pepper spray on their own people working in the administration offices. If they'll do that to their colleagues, the incarcerated don't stand a chance and things need to change. And again, I'm so glad that you're fighting this, but I'm so sorry you had to go through this. Thank you. William, go ahead. You know, as you're talking, I think we need to understand the level of cruelty. You know, the cruelty that these people, they I mean, you just said, they've already been sentenced. They've already been sentenced to prison. Why Why do people feel the need to just be so cruel and treat people this way? And I think that's the biggest thing that we as a society need to understand. Stop living in this world of disbelief that these are just little, little one-off stories that we hear. And we need to understand and grasp that these people are – they're treating our loved ones like this behind the wall. And it's, it's amazing because you're hearing death upon death, and like you said, they, and they'll go to their default story saying, well, they committed suicide. And they just think that this is just – this is the norm for these institutions. This is the norm that, that they can treat people this way and get away with it, and we have to talk about it. Clint, your thoughts? Yeah, uh, I sit here and think, you know, the American public has heard this. It's been in the news. It's been on TV, and my thoughts are, where is the outrage? Where is the outrage of the public? They know about forced labor. For slave wages. They see it on TV. I mean, somebody is getting the benefit of that man's work. He's been doing it for 20 years in prison. 
and he's making uh, whatever he's making. And, and, and uh, so, you know, where is the outrage? 10 out of 11 diagnosed cases of mental illness are incarcerated instead of uh, put in a mental for treatment. For, for treatment. They're incarcerated in prison. Deaths, like you said, of individuals, not even charged or convicted, but spend many days in prison and end up dead. Where's the outrage of the American people? Well, it's, it's, a, it's a good point. And, and I'm, out, I'm outraged tonight hearing Christopher and uh, Darlene's story uh, and what Christopher witnessed firsthand of what he saw. I understand that. Uh, uh, being one wrongfully convicted myself and had to deal with issues uh, for over seven years, seeing things that are just, are you kidding me? Uh, hats off to Christopher. And then to hear the heartfelt story uh, of Darlene and her son. Man, I, I, that'll stay with me tonight and probably many days because you hear Darlene's pain here that she lost her son. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. David. Well, and I think we have to look at the system itself uh, and look no further than the Eighth Amendment, where they talk about cruel and unusual punishment as far as being prohibited has to be cruel and unusual. I've made this point a number of times. So we have a system that is baselined on cruelty. So garden variety cruelty is something that the courts accept. Because it's sanctioned through the Eighth Amendment that you, you just can't be unusually cruel. And then there's the glorification of cruelty by the way they talk about the ADX. I don't care if it was El Chapo going in or the Boston bomber. The media is on television glorifying the clean version of hell. And uh, he's going over to the ADX. And they're, they're just all glorifying the cruelty of solitary confinement. There, there's a sickness in this society. Clint asked a question about, about the public. Um, well, the public uh, is, is really accepting of cruelty in prisons, which is the sad, sad reality, because obviously they don't care enough, or at least they haven't shown, shown that thus far, because of, of the glorification of crime and punishment that, that, that is at the uh, core and the foundation of the U.S. criminal justice system. So it's just very sad. So what's happened? What happened to uh, Dante? What happened to Michael Anderson? These things are, are are a byproduct of a system that accepts cruelty as the foundation of their criminal justice system. And really quick, uh, Darlene, I want uh, and good point, David, and to all of our hosts that that chimed in here. Uh, Darlene, your closing thoughts tonight. Again, we're picking this show up next week. There's just, that's not enough time. We've got a lot to discuss going forward still. Uh, you're welcome to be a part of that. Uh, if not, we appreciate you being here tonight. Uh, your closing thoughts, Darlene. How do we get this better? You're out here championing a lot of things, and we salute you for that. Christopher's out here doing a lot of things. We salute you for that. Both of you, very quickly, Darlene, your closing thoughts. How do we get better? How do we get resolution? Uh, basically, people need to unify. You know, people need to unify against the system, um, get educated. Uh, myself, you know, getting involved with the NQI NY campaign. We're planning to educate people on July 15th. 
um, to get more people out there to try to end qualified immunity in New York because we can't wait for the federal government to do it. The Georgia Floyd and Policing Act is sitting there and they're not moving it strictly for qualified immunity. And we need to end this. Absolutely. So people need to get active and unify. No, for sure. Thank you, Darlene. Christopher, your closing thoughts, resolution, what do we do? You know, I think I think an important lesson is taken from the case of the Scottsboro Boys and from the Dred Scott opinions. We can't expect the courts to protect us. We can't expect the courts to protect anyone in prison or anyone accused of a crime. There has to be a different way to fix this. You know, when we have the, the highest court of the land with the, uh, the Dred Scott opinion saying slavery is okay, when we have courts just running over the Scottsboro Boys, I mean, many years ago, the same type of things are happening today. This has to be more activist activism kind of based and also has to be more strategic. You know, judges aren't going to protect us in this. There has to be more of a groundswell movement to force effective change. Well, guys, thank you so much for being part of this show. Uh, Very special thanks to you, Darlene. Our prayers, our thoughts are with you always. Um, And Christopher, our thoughts are with you as well as you guys are in the trenches uh, trying to institute change. I can't thank you enough. Your information tonight has been informative and heart-wrenching tonight is what we've heard on this show, and we couldn't be more grateful to having you on this show tonight. We thank you so very much. Thank you. Take care. You have it, ladies and gentlemen, Darlene McDay, um, Christopher adding his perspective uh, to it as well, Uh, Christopher Zoukas, a very special thanks. We'll pick this up next week. The series continues. Injustice, unequal justice in America's criminal justice system. We deal with it again next week. This is AGC Radio. Good night, America. Until next time.
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires goal for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC.